Podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades old unsolved mysteries. These stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. In today's episode, we are talking about one of the most notorious school rampages of all times. The shooting at Columbine High School. On April 20th, 1999, two Columbine seniors named Dylan Claybold and Eric Harris armed themselves with sawed-off shotguns semi-automatic pistols, and over 30 homemade bombs. They proceeded to terrorize their high school for a little under an hour, killing 12 students, one teacher, and wounding 25 others before finally killing themselves. The tragedy sparked a national debate over bullying in schools, and became the second most covered news event of the 1990s behind the O.J. Simpson trial. The Columbine Massacre also inspired other horrific school shootings, notably the Virginia Tech shooting in 2007 by Cho Sung-hui, during which he killed 33 students and faculty, including himself. Countless theories persist as to why Claybold and Harris carried out such a vicious, wholesale slaughter on their schoolmates, especially because they didn't target any group in particular. They killed indiscriminately and without mercy. Were Claybold and Harris tormented by bullies and driven to kill by revenge? Or were they stone-cold psychopaths? Let's dive right in. This is the Columbine Massacre. A small, unincorporated town southwest of Denver, Colorado, woke up to a beautiful spring morning on April 20th, 1999. Columbine, Colorado, and the adjoining city of Littleton, contains a typical upper-middle-class community of two-story brick homes, parks, country clubs, and golf courses. In 2000, the median household income was 50000 Today, that would have the purchasing power of about 77000 From the outside looking in, it's the kind of suburban area that seems like perfect place to raise a family and live out the American dream. Nearly 2,000 community teenagers attended the local public secondary school Columbine High. By the end of April, the semester was coming to a close. The graduating class of 1999 could see the light at the end of the tunnel. The seniors were scheduled to walk across the stage in their caps and gowns in less than a month in a ceremony that was the most significant moment of their lives thus far. 
Little did they know, two students filled with murderous rage were about to change all of that. At around 11 a.m., the bell rang at Columbine High, signaling class changes and sending hundreds of students to lunch in the cafeteria, also called the Commons. A senior named Brooks Brown went to the back of the school by the parking lots to smoke a cigarette, and he saw a friend of his pulling into an unusual parking spot. Eric Harris got out of the car and opened the trunk. Brown walked over to Harris, razzed him about skipping class that morning, and hurled friendly insults his way. Harris, dressed in a black trench coat, a white t-shirt, and black pants tucked into military-style boots, turned to Brown and looked at him for a long moment. Finally, he said, Brooks, I like you. Now get out of here. Go home. Brown thought it was strange. Eric was acting weird, but he walked on down the street towards his home anyway. When he started to hear gunshots coming from the school behind him, he ran. At Columbine High School, all hell just broke loose. After Harris spoke with Brooks Brown, he went into the packed cafeteria with his accomplice, Dylan Claybold, and planted two 20-pound propane tank bombs hidden in black duffel bags. Since the floor was littered with other book bags and lunchboxes, nobody noticed, and an ill-timed security tape change prevented it from being captured on camera. The bombs were set to detonate at 11.17 a.m., when Harris estimated the cafeteria would be at capacity. The pair went outside to wait. They planned to shoot survivors of the bomb blast as they tried to escape the building. 11.17 came and went, but the bombs, they didn't explode. It was now time for Plan B. Several students, including Rachel Scott and Richard Castaldo, were eating lunch on a sun-soaked grassy knoll outside the west entrance to the school when Dylan Claybold and Eric Harris tossed a pipe bomb in their direction. The explosion stunned the kids outside, but almost no one reacted. Most just thought it was a senior prank, until Claybold and Harris pulled shotguns from their bags and started shooting. Castaldo was hit several times and left paralyzed. Rachel Scott was hit four times and killed after Eric Harris shot her in the head. Five other students jumped up from their lunches to run away, and Harris and Claybold peppered them with bullets. Next, Harris and Claybold turned and picked off Sean Graves, Lance Kirkland, and Daniel Rohrbaugh as they headed to a nearby park for lunch. Claybold walked over to 15-year-old Rohrbau as he laid injured on the sidewalk and fired at point-blank range, killing him. His body reportedly stayed there for a full 24 hours after the event before the coroners were able to collect his body. 
in less than five minutes as Harris and Claybold stalked their way toward the building's west entrance. They had murdered two students and wounded at least eight others. A school resource officer named Neil Gardner responded to frantic radio calls from inside the school and pulled up to the west entrance in his cruiser just as Claybold and Harris were about to walk inside. Harris turned and fired at Gardner as he stepped out of his car, pulling his service pistol. Gardner fired four shots at Harris before he disappeared behind Claybold into the building. The terror inside Columbine had officially begun. The first call to 911 went out at 11.23 a.m. With a student reporting shots fired, and an injured girl in the back parking lot. The kids and teachers inside the building could hear gunfire and bombs going off during the initial assault. At first, no one knew what was happening, and only a few teachers sprang into action. An educator named Dave Sanders was in the cafeteria and immediately started clearing students out of the commons. After, he saw the injured kids on the ground outside of the windows. When Claybold and Harris walked in a few moments later, the cafeteria appeared to be empty, except for a few wounded students who were playing dead. Several news outlets reported they shot at students in there too but there was hardly anyone left to make it the shooting gallery they had anticipated. It's thought that the quick thinking and actions of Dave Sanders saved the lives of at least 100 students. Once it was clear there were people with guns inside the building, teachers started frantically going from room to room, yelling at students to get under tables and desks and locking them in classrooms so the shooters couldn't just walk in and open fire. Dave Sanders was locking doors by the science labs when he came face to face with Dylan Claybold. He tried to run, but Claybold shot him twice in the upper back and shoulders, leaving him on the ground in the hallway to bleed to death. Once the shooters had moved on, Sanders managed to crawl into one of the science labs, where he would spend the next four hours slowly bleeding to death, being attended by a fellow teacher and several students. Next, the shooter swept through the hallways towards the library, wreaking general havoc. They detonated bombs, shot through classroom windows, and pulled deafening fire alarms that heightened the sense of chaos, complete pandemonium. They spent at least three minutes outside the library in the hallway, setting off bombs and firing guns. But the worst was yet to come. Claybold and Harris walked into the library at 11.29 a.m. and unleashed complete carnage on 56 students and staff members taking cover inside hiding under the front desk on the phone with a 911 operator was part-time art teacher Patricia Nielsen. Because of the open line, 
the operator caught the entire library attack on audio. through the door and screamed for everyone to get up. No one did. So they started walking around and shooting the students hiding beneath the tables. Witnesses reported that Harris and Claybold taunted the victims just before they shot them. Eric Harris bent down to where a student named Cassie Bernal was cowering, said peekaboo, and then shot her point-blank in the head, killing her instantly. They tried to pull a senior athlete named Isaiah Scholes out from under a table while yelling racial slurs before they executed him. One survivor named Evan Todd described the scene years later as they were having a good time, which is disgusting, but it's the only way to put it. In seven minutes, they killed 10 students and wounded several others, leaving a heap of lifeless bodies on the blood-soaked carpet behind them. Their behavior after the library makes little sense. As Claybold and Harris walked back towards the cafeteria, they started shooting into empty classrooms. Witnesses reported the shooters peering through the classroom windows and making eye contact with students huddling for cover. But they did not attempt to shoot the locks of the doors and kill more people. Instead, they continued to discharge their weapons at random and detonate pipe bombs as they made their way back to the commons. By this point, the fire alarms had been blaring for nearly 30 minutes. According to video surveillance footage, both Claybold and Harris took turns shooting at one of their unexploded propane bottoms in an attempt to get it to explode. One has to wonder if they were attempting to blow themselves up. They seemed to be losing interest in the rampage. For several minutes, they putzed around the cafeteria, picking up and swigging 
random drinks left by fleeing students. They lit a handful of pipe bombs next to the propane bomb and managed to partially detonate it, but it caused little more than a loud explosion and a small fire. The sprinkler system deployed. So, they left and headed back towards the library. There were still hundreds of terrified students hiding in the school. They chose the library, surrounded by most of their murdered victims, as the place to violently end their own lives. And now, for a quick break. My name is John Lorden, and I've been looking into hundreds of unsolved mysteries over the past five years on my YouTube channel, Lorden Arts. And I've been known to bring a respectful, victim-focused approach to the stories that I cover while donating thousands of dollars directly to those cases and the charities that help them. Now, I'm bringing that approach and sensibility, along with some of the biggest mysteries I've ever looked into and some new ones, to a weekly podcast called Seriously Mysterious. From bizarre occurrences to unsolved murders and unexplainable disappearances, everything is fair game on this show as long as it's seriously mysterious. You can find Seriously Mysterious on your favorite podcatchers or by visiting seriouslymysterious.com. Let's look into the mysterious together. Now, back to the show. In one last hurrah, Claybold and Harris fired through the library windows at law enforcement and paramedics attempting to retrieve wounded students on the lawn. Officers and SWAT teams now on the scene returned heavy fire until no other gunshots were heard coming from inside. According to the sheriff's department timeline, witnesses hiding in the library reported Claybold and Harris killed themselves at 12.08 p.m., officially putting an end to one of the deadliest school shootings in America up to that point. But the police didn't know that. Conflicting reports of the number of shooters and lack of active shooter protocol slowed law enforcement's response at Columbine. Despite having 300 police tactical, and SWAT team officers surrounding the building, it took over three additional hours to clear the school and attempt to save any survivors. Paramedics didn't get to teacher Dave Sanders until 3 p.m., and he died of blood loss shortly after. The names of the victims of Columbine as follows. Rachel Scott, 17. Daniel Rohrbaugh, 15. Dave Sanders, 47. Kyle Velasquez, 16. Stephen Kernow, 14. Cassie Bernal, 17. Isaiah Schultz, 18. Matthew Ketcher, 16. Lauren Townsend, 18. John Tomlin, 
17. Kelly Fleming, 16. Daniel Mauser, 15. Corey Day Potter, 17. Join me in a moment of silence for these victims. Unfortunately, for survivors and parents, the massacre at Columbine created a media frenzy. Once the calls started flooding the 911 dispatchers around 11.30 a.m. on April 20th, students and parents who couldn't get through began calling three local broadcast stations. They were desperate for any information on what was happening inside of the school. By 11.45, quote, every newsroom in Denver had lurched into big story mode, unquote. At 12 p.m., student Jonathan Ladd called the KUSA station from inside the school. And after being briefly vetted by the station manager, he agreed to go on air. This was unprecedented. Columbine was the first school shooting of the cell phone age, and it changed everything about how breaking news was covered by news media. It also produced errors and misinformation, such as inaccurate estimate of the number of shooters, the misidentification of the shooters, and rumors of a greater conspiracy perpetrated by a group of ragtag outcasts known as the Trenchcoat Mafia. Hundreds of reporters descended on Littleton, Colorado. News crews on the scenes numbered in 20s on April 20th. One day later, there were between 100 and 150 crews on the ground from all over the country. Wednesday morning, Denver television audiences awoke to NBC Today show host Katie Couric broadcasting live from Columbine High School. CNN, Fox News, and the networks each flew in scores of people. So did major newspapers such as the Washington Post, New York Times, and Los Angeles Times. Journalists from Japan, England, and France came to capture a piece of the horrendous tragedy. Even smaller papers, such as the New Orleans Times-Picayune and the Cleveland Plain Dealer, sent reporters. It quickly became a sea of wall-to-wall -wall media. Quote from the article by Alicia C. Shepard on the Columbine media coverage from Columbia.edu. Near constant national coverage of the tragedy lasted a little over 10 days, but that was plenty of time to harass the families of the victims and survivors. Strain in the grieving Colorado community was at an all-time high. What about the families of Dylan Claybold and Eric Harris? They instantly became the most hated members of their community. People blamed them for not preventing the shooting. How could they not know what their sons were planning? 
Their parents had very different reactions to the shooting. Sue Claybold refused to accept that her son Dylan was a willing perpetrator. She became convinced Eric Harris must have coerced him into it until law enforcement released the basement tapes. Who were these kids? And what made them so violently angry? The basement tapes give us some clues. The basement tapes are a series of home videos filmed by Harris and Claybold and some of their friends. The tapes established that Harris and Claybold planned the Columbine Massacre, which they nicknamed MBK, or Natural Born Killers, for eight months before they carried it out. They made the tapes in hopes they would have been shown to the world after their masterpiece was complete. What's contained within them is chilling. Starting March 15th, 1999, the boys began filming their preparations for the attack. They talk about the obliviousness of their parents. Dylan recalls concealing his shotgun under his black trench coat and walking through the house to see if his parents would notice. Unfortunately for 13 innocent victims, they didn't. They talk about their friends who bought guns for them and make swipes at the inevitable calls for gun control after they carry out their sinister plan. Go ahead and change gun laws. How do you think we got ours? Eric Harris. They take the would-be viewer on a tour of Eric Harris's room, which contains enough hidden weapons and bomb-making supplies to be classified as a small armory. Eric waves at the camera and says, Hi, Mom. Eric produces a large hunting knife with a swastika on the sheath. He's a big Hitler fan. They chose April 20th as the day for MBK because it was Hitler's birthday. They talk about the kids they hate the groups they despise, and the people they are going to put in the ground. A religious war. A revolution for the disposed. The most deaths in U.S. history, they state their sinister goals with pride. After viewing the tapes, Sue Claybold could no longer deny Dylan's willing involvement in the Columbine Massacre. Her, an NPR interview with her, quote, Seeing those tapes was one of the most shocking, dramatically traumatic things that happened in the aftermath of this. Because I had been living with such a different construct to try to cope with what I believed to be true, unquote. He was just as full of anger and hatred as Eric Harris. It was a mother's worst nightmare. Her son was sick, but how did he get that way? Born in Lakewood, Colorado on September 11th, 1981, Dylan Claybold 
had a fairly traditional childhood. He was the youngest of two children. His parents had good careers. Dad, a geophysicist, and mom was a special education teacher, a bright student. Dylan participated in a program for gifted students in elementary school. He played baseball and rooted for the Boston Red Sox. Sue Claybold said he didn't have problems until he went to high school, when Dylan was a freshman. He became friends with Eric Harris, and things started to unravel. Claybold started experiencing the well-known bullying culture at Columbine High. His mother recounted one event that stuck with her, commonly referred to as the ketchup incident. One day, Dylan came home, his shirt spotted with ketchup. He refused to tell me what happened, only that he had the worst day of his life. I pressed, but Dylan downplayed it, and I let him. Kids have disagreements, I thought. Whatever it is, it'll blow over if it doesn't. I'll know. There has been reporting that the incident was more serious than I could have ever imagined. A circle of boys taunting Dylan and Eric, shoving them, spraying them with ketchup, and suggesting they were gay. The incident alone may not explain the deadly kinship forced between the boys, but it is the kind of shared humiliation in which a bond is formed. From Sue Claybold's 2016 book, A Mother's Reckoning Living in the Aftermath of the Columbine Tragedy. Sue Claybold also provided an interesting anecdote that she said happened right after the tragedy. One of our neighbors told us her grown son's reaction to the tragedy, a refrain we heard many times. I'm just surprised it didn't happen sooner. What about Eric Harris? Most people, from the FBI investigators to Sue Claybold, described Harris as mentally disturbed. His parents haven't spoken publicly about the tragedy, but his father did call 911 the day of the massacre and reported that he thought his son might be one of the shooters. Why would he assume his son was involved in the horrific school shooting? Well, Eric had a reputation for being volatile and full of rage. Eric was born in Wichita, Kansas, April 9, 1981, the son of an Air Force officer. Eric moved around frequently with his family until they settled in Littleton, Colorado, just before he started high school. Eric played soccer and had plenty of friends, but it took nothing to set him off. Harris took antidepressants for several months before the attacks. He reported to his doctors that he was having homicidal and suicidal thoughts. The doctor's solution? They put Harris on another brand of the same medication. Remember Brooks Brown? the student who spoke to Eric Harris in the parking lot just before the shooting started. Harris had actually threatened to kill Brown numerous times on his homemade website the year before. 
Their problems began when Brown threw a rock at Harris's windshield and refused to pay for it. So Harris threatened to kill him, loudly and publicly. Brown's parents reportedly called Littleton police and made three complaints, but there was no follow-up. The two boys mended fences by the time the massacre occurred. Lucky for Brown. But Harris was also on law enforcement's radar for something else. In 1998, Harris and Claybold were arrested for breaking into a van and stealing electronic equipment. Because they had no prior arrests, they were sent to a diversion program for counseling and therapy. The boys were released early after their evaluations gave them glowing reviews about their bright futures. Harris and Claybold easily manipulated authority figures, but the adults in their lives made one misstep after another. It's clear now that both teenagers had severe mental health problems, but no one seemed to be able to give them the care that they needed. Do Harris and Claybold deserve the label of psychopath? When you hear survivors from the library attack describe the way Claybold and Harris laughed and taunted their victims as they shot them in the faces with sawed-off shotguns, it's hard to push the word out of your mind. 22 years later, the Columbine massacre still haunts the survivors and their families. Sue Claybold has tried to find meaning from it by studying brain health and psychology. Victims' families have started countless charities in the names of their lost loved ones. The tragedy did start a national conversation about bullying culture, which is something positive, but the scars of Columbine are still tender. Tragically, Claybold and Harris did indeed forge a legacy. They inspired others to follow in their footsteps. More than 80 school shooters have cited Columbine as inspiration for their own horrific deeds, leading to hundreds of innocent lives being stolen. This is commonly referred to as the Columbine Effect. Quote from the documentary's Echoes of Columbine. Today, Columbine continues to resonate with a new breed of shooter inspiring a cult-like following of those who see Columbine as a kind of twisted blueprint to follow and surpass. Columbine is seen as the origin story for many of the attacks that followed. Thanks for listening, and remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room.